Double J, Jeff Jarrett, here with a few of my pals to tell you about the total nonstop savings happening over at SaveWithConrad.com. Daniel Ortiz in Angelo, Texas. We had four large financial unexpected emergencies, and I knew that I needed something to give us a little more breathing room. And when he mentioned we can skip two house payments and wipe out credit card debt and loan debt, so that's exactly what I did. I called them, and it did change everything. Diane, she was awesome. She was professional. And the important thing with her is she listened. That's what made all the difference in the world. She was patient. And anytime that I needed to talk to her, she was there. She texted back. It was a different experience from any other place. Well, I can tell you the difference that it made was over $80,000 for us. It freed up that much. My credit score went up 126 points with Save with Conrad, which made it an 802. My name is Daniel Ortiz, and I freed up $80,000 with SaveWithConrad.com. In my world, it doesn't get any better than five stars. Find out how much money Conrad and his team can save you by strutting over to SaveWithConrad.com. So right now, Strut on over to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! talk in the observer that initially hunter versus goldberg at SummerSlam might be replaced with you and hunter at SummerSlam. was that ever discussed do you remember that this would have been SummerSlam 03 ah uh, yeah vaguely uh, even because hunter and i had great chemistry and uh even in setting the deal for the uh the referee for his match with kevin uh, the storyline was that in each of the two previous uh, cell matches, maybe there have been three at that point, four, uh, referees had been injured and the referees were taking a stand saying the cell was too, not, dangerous. too dangerous. And then Steve Austin was like, I've got a guy. You know, I've got a guy. So when I showed up, this is one of those things that on paper looks ridiculous. You know, though, I have the power to count to three, right? That no matter what happens, I'm going to be there when the dust clears and I'm going to make that count. And so Triple H lays me out pretty authoritative fashion, you know, with authority. And as he's walking up the aisle, I go, what? Yeah, (laughs) I can still do it. Yeah, I can still do it. And he, oh, man. And, you know, he comes back, lays another beating on me, goes to walk away, and it's still one. Too. It's uh, those simple things, similar to what we did when I transformed from Mankind to Cactus Jack. Mm-hmm. And on one very definite level, I was just a guy taking a shirt off. Uh, but on another level, it was like a ghost from the past that appeared, and he sold it that way. So that's the way he sold me as a referee. So I can't remember for a fact if, if or maybe they were thinking about that uh, without letting me know. I think, uh, you know, I was getting into some pretty good shape. Hunter was, uh, it was and still is a great ring general uh, with a good storyline. I think we could have had a good match. So June 23rd at MSG is Mick Foley Appreciation Night. <laughs> the little kid in you had to think that was pretty damn nifty. I did, but this shows you how much WWE has grown because at a certain point, they wanted to make that a Hall of Fame induction. 
Oh. Hall of Fame inductions weren't then in 2003 what they are now. Right. Uh, and uh, they hadn't yet moved even to the theaters, let alone, I guess they may have been in theaters. You know, they're out of the ballrooms, into theaters, but not doing arenas. Yeah. It wasn't quite what it would become. And then I remember Steph saying, you know, my dad's afraid it might look disrespectful to guys like Blassie and people of, the, of that time if we induct a guy at 35, I think I was 35 at the time. And I went, okay, he said, we're going to make it like a hardcore appreciation night. And one thing I regret is that uh, Crash Holly wasn't on the list. It wasn't like I made the list. I wanted Terry Funk to be there. Terry, uh, you know, went on to be a great promo between me and Terry in 2006. You know, Terry wanted to be compensated for making that long trip. And when I found that out, you know, Steph, I said, what about Terry? And Stephanie went, man, God, I don't know how you tell you this, but... Terry wanted a lot of money to come in. And that hurt my feelings. It legit did. And we later aired it out in a really good video uh, um, in 2006, where I said it was the last thing I did. I was going on my hands and knees and crawl over to Amarillo, Texas and spit on <laughs> Terry's grave. It was a heavy interview. For another time, another place, we'll talk about it. Um, but it was turned into a celebration at the garden. I wish Crash had been there. It, hurt, it really hurt him that he wasn't there. But I was basically just looking at the list I was given. And then I said, oh, what about Terry Funk to yeah. add to it? But it was Al Snow and it was Rob Van Dam. And I don't know who else was there, but it was uh, yeah, a little appreciation night. It was really cool. Did, uh, did the wife and kids come and everybody? I wish they had. I wish they had uh, because they were definitely at home because I believe I ended my appreciation night by being thrown down a flight of stairs. <laughs> I believe I did. I don't think those sentences have ever touched uh, in I, history until just You now. can't just. That would be like having a birthday party without a, you know somebody's face in a cake. You're going to have an appreciation night. You're going to leave only getting yourself over? No, that's that's not the, the, our way. It's not the Foley way. Right. So as long as you're going to leave, you might as well get thrown down a flight of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they had to find to find the hardcore belt. They had to place a call to Tommy Dreamer, who had it over his mantle. So Tommy brings it in, uh, and it might as well be like encased in <laughs> in stone because this plexiglass is thick. It's very ungiving. So I get hit from behind. I, I think I said something to Flair and. Uh, and Randy, who had lost a match together. Oh, you really showed that? You really proved yourself tonight. And next thing I know, here comes this thing from behind. Boom. You're expecting it to shatter, but it doesn't. The only thing that shatters is part of my scalp, you know. Wow. It opens up that major Grand Canyon divot. And in the worst of all wrestling circumstances, it hurts like hell. And you don't see a drop of blood because it mixes in with the dark hair and because the angle is so quick, it's boom. And now here comes the throw down the stairs. At that time, I'm to still totally against wearing any type of padding. You know, it's gotta feel real. And I end up with a deep shoulder bruise that will bother me for about two months. And that doesn't set in until I make that Two hours, it's about an hour and a half drive. At that time, getting out of the garden early, it takes about 90 minutes, took me about 90 minutes to get back home. And I can, by the time I get home, I can already feel it tightening. 
and I know from experience, oh, this is not good. This is really going to hurt tomorrow. I climb up into my, climb into my bed. My wife said, how'd it go? I said, oh, man, it was really good. And she said, can you take the garbage out? <laughs> take the garbage out. Come up again. She said, uh, could you uh, take care of the guinea pigs? It really smells up there. I go up there. And the third time I lay down and she said something else, I said, you know, 90 minutes ago, 20,000 people were chanting my name, but it's the highs and lows. Right? Yes. You, you come you come back home and you're no big deal. And that's probably good for your ego. Yeah. You're treated like a big deal and you act like a big deal around your house. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I think you, you deserve to be taken down a peg every now and then. I didn't need to be taken down then quite that far, uh, but that was a tough time physically for me because that bruise was so deep. But then Randy took that ball, and that's what led, yeah, and ran with it. That's what led up to my uh, return, you know, in December. So we had this clock ticking for a while, you know. What, when was the date where the, with the... Uh, MSG uh, was 623, Yeah, June 623. Yep. So I didn't come back for about five months. And when I did come back, I bailed out of that match. And uh, I'm so glad that I, you know, stuck to my gut feeling and that Vince uh, trusted me on that because had it failed, you know, that could have been that could have been a serious blow to the way people thought about me. But it didn't. That segment added a million viewers to Raw. Did it really? Yes. That segment wow. added a million. And then Shawn Michaels and Kevin Nash against Ric Flair and Randy Orton lost 601,000. So... That'll put some butts in seats. Put some eyes on the product, at least. Yeah, well, that's nice to know. Yeah. But even though a million people saw it, the missus wasn't there. Right. I feel weird even asking this, but you sort of alluded to it last week, so I think maybe it's an okay follow-up. But you said that it hurt her feelings and your feelings specifically when she wasn't welcomed backstage at Survivor Series 96. But we saw the footage of you and your fam at Monday night or, or at the Royal Rumble with The Rock yeah. that we saw in Beyond the Mat and all the brutal chair shots. But this is 90 minutes from home, and it's Madison Square Garden, your dream home arena, yeah. the spiritual home of the company, and it's Mick Foley night, and she's not there. Does she still, I don't know, uncomfortable with WWE at that well, point? Keep in mind uh, that after the uh, the Rumble, um, With the rock. several months, yeah, several months later, um, 2020 does an interview in which my wife in attempting to stick up for me and the business tr tries explaining the fallout from some of the stuff I've done. She thinks she's protecting the business, but I realize it's kind of making me look, she's going a little overboard in her urge to, you know, her hope of protecting her husband and, uh, and and letting people know that what I do is difficult. So when she would say he walks like an 80-year-old man, I would say, yeah, but like a sexy 80-year-old man. You're trying to soften it up. But, they, you know, through creative editing, that stuff's taken out. And it did appear, if you were watching and didn't know anything else about me, you're, lo you're looking at a guy who's on his last mental legs to the point where I start going through airports and total strangers who are not wrestling fans are coming up to me and saying, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Oh. And now you're in that very unlikely position where instead of defending the business, you are openly 
admitting that you don't get hurt as bad as they think you're getting hurt. Yes. I said, it's not like that every day, right? They're building that case around the cell match. They assume uh, it's that day Right, day yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is part of the reason why I got out of wrestling full-time when I did, because my kids are seeing these matches. I told them, Daddy never gets hurt. And now they're finding dad lies, you know, and dad's coming home, you know, with the uh, bruises and, you know, he's having trouble and he can't, I'm sorry, I can't go out and play today. And basically, you know, if we're having a catch or, you know, playing soccer, if that ball doesn't come right to me, I'm not getting to it because my lateral movement, my knees are shot, especially from not wearing the knee pads yeah. and working that physical style. So a lot of things, you know, I was a reason why I retired, you know, head injuries, uh, knees are all banged up. It, it was a good time for me to go, and I wish I had gone. And there's that part of me that wishes I'd only had the one return match. The perfect ending is you go out in the blaze of glory or you know, ride off into the sunset like I did. I didn't, it wasn't a blaze of glory. It was ride off into the sunset, February 2000. But I think everyone is due that one comeback match. Of course. And I did have that comeback match. For reasons we'll discuss, I felt unfulfilled, and that's why I had to chase that singles match with Randy Orton. But but to follow up on what you asked, um, even though Vince did call up Collette and apologize uh, for making a comparison to um, uh, Mike Tyson's wife, um, uh, get, uh, what was her name? Robin Givens. Robin Givens, yeah. Robin Givens. Uh, I called Vince and he said, well, I was trying to make the point that uh, you were a sympathetic figure like Mike. And I went, but that's not what you said. You didn't say I looked it seemed like Mike. You said my wife was uh, like Robin Givens. I said, then I reminded him of the charges Robin was laying at, on Mike. Totally different. Totally different. And here's my wife trying to stand up for me. You know, I did think I came across, I came across like a guy who would not be doing an interview with Conrad Thompson, you know, 20, uh, 20 years later, uh, 21 years later. Like, uh, again, I'm having to, when you're having to explain to strangers that you don't get hurt as bad as they think you do, yeah. instead of being the guy saying, hey, listen, we get hurt worse than you think we do. It was just so contrary to everything I'd grown up with, you right. know, but like I said, total strangers praying for me. Like I was on my, my last legs, but after the phone, even though she appreciated the phone call events, she she didn't feel comfortable in that world. You know, it's sad. From then on. From then on, yeah. Yeah. So you have this first meeting with him, and, and he doesn't have a name for the character, but he knows he likes the look. Yeah. Um, or at least he wants to cover up his face, whatever. Cover up his face, yeah. Um, did he have a backstory in that first meeting of why this guy wears a mask? No. He just thought it was a cool look. Yeah. And so what's the context of the rest of the meeting? Once you get through the niceties of, oh, I used to live over the, where that smokestack is and, hey, you like my promos and we like this cool drawing of this guy, he's still just offering opportunity or is this a more guaranteed deal? No, no guarantee. So uh, um, I took some umbrage once Stone Cold and I found out that I love Mark Meyer was a great human being, right? One of the greatest ex-wrestlers. Sure. In that he does these great talks with students and he's changed lives he probably saved some lives uh but at that point when i found out that mark came in like almost a week less than a week after i had with a guarantee that became uh that became it was good for me it was good for steve too because we both felt like we were two guys who uh who could go you know who could be a cornerstone for the company 
and Steve had signed, you know, a few months earlier than I had for just a, an opportunity. Yeah. I'd signed for the opportunity, and then Mark came in with a guarantee. That became a real driving force for us. So Vince sort of lays out the plan. You know, Undertaker apparently had been telling him and Kevin Nash uh, that that they needed you on the roster. Oh, yes, and, thank you, Taker. Um, then the mask. You wrote in your right. book that when you see the mask, your heart drops. <laughs> uh, is it because you really had in your mind's eye, I was going to be Cactus Jack, and you couldn't imagine yourself as anything else? Conrad, it wasn't broke. <laughs> it didn't need to be fixed. Like, the, you know, I re it, one thing that really stung a little bit was when Vince was pushing uh, the uh, the dude love character and he really did push that he did a voiceover he goes after having a modicum of success as cactus jack like, cactus jack worked everywhere it was given a chance to work right uh i have no doubt it would have worked in wwe but had it worked in wwe and i came out of the gate as cactus jack i wouldn't have had the run as mankind that's right there would have been no dude love as we speak I just saw there are plans uh, for Pops to do Mankind exclusive to one store, Dude Love General, Cactus Jack exclusive. So they're doing the three-face of Foley in Pops 22 years after I retired from full-time wrestling. Yeah. So uh, the longevity. It oh, it worked out. It worked out. But at the time, it was like, it's not broke why fix it? So I could turn up the volume and uh, I could do a variety of different things uh, character-wise. I'd shown that I could tell stories in um, in ECW. I'd shown I could cut promos in WCW. I'd shown I could work with the top guys and not be uh, and and not be overwhelmed psychologically because you're working with these guys. I think on my way, and I, I think I know on my way to that uh, flight. Uh, to Corpus Christi when I'd be going into a WWE venue for the first time since uh, 86. You know, I think I, I stopped doing the enhancement matches after my match with uh, Kamala or Hercules aired. Uh, so it had been 10 years since I'd been in a WWE venue, and I had to think to myself on the plane. I had to think of all the people I'd already worked with in WCW, including The Undertaker, uh, and I had to remind myself that I was kind of a big deal. That this was not this was something that I had earned um, because I've seen guys come in who lose their mojo in um, in WWF sort of big fish small pond yeah sort of yeah thing. and also you know you get on the wrong end of maybe two or three people that can really hurt you at that time you know I'm looking behind your uh, uh, over your shoulder at the Taz. Gear. Taz was a guy who, you know, when you see Taz in ECW with Bam Bam, you're like, what manner of human being is this? Yeah. You know, like he looked like a monster. And then when he came in, he looked like a man. And he never seemed to regain that mojo that he had in in ECW. I think he started with it with Kurt Angle, but very quickly it felt like they... Yeah, because he received this incredible response, bigger response than I got at the Garden when yeah. I did the uh, the match with uh, with Triple H. Um, so he was there, and just a couple guys, I think there were a couple people behind the scenes who uh, cast doubt on him. You know, Taz had asked uh, 
uh, if the fact that he was 5'7 was going to hurt him. He said, Vince said, no, we're going to make that work for us. I wonder what Hunter said, though. <laughs> I don't know. Because as the rumor and innuendo goes, he was not a fan. And when he was the ECW champion and got pinned on SmackDown by the WWF champion, it was like, okay, well, that's the end of Taz. And As a fan yeah, of Taz, yeah, that's yeah. the way I felt. Like, man, you just beat him that easy with a pedigree and – that's not doing ECW or Taz. No, papers. no, it wasn't. It wasn't. He got on the wrong side of uh, the favorability war. Uh, and within a few short time, he didn't look like the same guy. But that's all confidence. It's a matter of confidence. And it's really easy to lose it. It's really easy to lose it. Well, that for that reason, I'm kind of glad you didn't come in as Cactus Jack. Because I almost wonder, given all the fun and crazy and sort of outside-of-the-box stuff you had done... I don't know that I, I don't know that the company was ready, and I don't know that I, as a fan, was ready for a whitewashed version of Cactus Jack. Yeah, does that make sense? Eddie Gilbert had a chance to go back to WCW at the same time I did in August of 1991. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want it to tarnish what he and I had done for uh, Joel Goodhart's Tri-State Wrestling. And I was willing to take the chance, and it paid off. I wish Eddie had done it, but he was so pure about. You know his feelings about what we had accomplished were so pure, he did not want to go back there. And probably the fact that WWE had ownership, not just literally over the mankind character, but they could say it was theirs. Yes, I could counter by saying, "You guys gave me a mask, and insisted I be dressed from head to toe in brown." Yeah, right. So brown, like as our friend DDP would say, I went down to the ring with all the flash and dazzle. Of a UPS delivery truck. That's true. But that's all they did. They insisted that I have the mask and might be dressed in brown. And I don't know if that was a rib on me at the time. They said only Undertaker wears black. And then I sat back and watched as a lot of guys one came by in one. wearing black. But by that point, you know, it's like, well, maybe brown didn't work for the Friar Ferguson character, you know? And maybe you don't want to go down there looking like a six foot four turd. But uh, I, we made it work. I couldn't have made it work without The Undertaker. I could not have made it work without uh, you know Jr. telling th those stories. So it was a it was a team effort in the sense that I had a great opponent and I had guys who put me over strong, you know, on TV as well. But um, the name, mankind, uh, even the uh, the symbol on the back, uh, the backstory. As the pianist who lost his fingers, they I had a lot of creative freedom, a lot of creative freedom. And then I would look across the arena at people trying to uh, um, reinvent the circle when it came, the wheel when it came to Vader. So I was like, well, they're, they're leaving me alone. And they're on his case about everything he does. And I feel like if they just left him alone, if he'd come in a year later when it was officially the Attitude Era, yeah, that uh, even Leon's... I'm talking about Leon because he was there a few months before I was with a big push, but to me a fatally flawed push in that they still believe that a, a monster heel should be a coward. There was still that old school, you got to be a coward because that's what people dislike. I'm that. curious, you know, just in terms of the timing, you know, there's the old game that we hear about, telephone, telegram, telewrestler. <laughs> yeah. And that summer, we're going to get the big showdown with, with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Hulk Hogan's coming to WCW. Did you, at this point, had you heard Hogan might be coming in? 
And did you think perhaps that you would be an opponent for him? Because what we had seen in the WWF was Hogan needed a heel factory. Just one big bad guy after another, uh, from Kamala to a big boss man to whomever. And it felt like the Cactus Jack persona, if it was a heel, could have been a prime candidate for Hogan. That's a great point, Conrad. I don't think I ever once thought that way. I think because by the time Hulk came, I had already given my notice. Right. In my head, it wasn't a matter. It wasn't. It wasn't a heel versus babyface equation. It was Mick Foley equals no future here. Yeah. Um, so when Hulk came in, Kevin Sullivan and I were teaming up. Um, we uh, Max Payne and I had had a heck of a match with the Nasty Boys. Unbelievable. Um, and that was supposed to be my last match before I had that surgery done. And so I actually said something on that. This is where it's a strange thing because you're uh, you're you're in the zone because I'm walking from the uh, I'm to, uh, the name of the hotel will come to me in a second. It was just across the parking lot. The Clarion. The Clarion uh, was just across the parking lot from the, the venue, uh, the Allstate Arena, um, which is not in downtown Chicago, but yeah. it's uh, in a suburb. It was right across the parking lot. I was already on edge because I felt like this uh, uh, thing with uh, me and Vader had been dropped prematurely, yeah. and my push had been dropped. And so I was uh, not so much confronted, but approached by a camera crew uh, because Missy Hyatt had filed a claim oh. against WCW, mm -hmm. and I said the immortal words, kind of in in kind of in character, but I said, if you can reach down into Ted's deep pockets, go ahead and do something to those words. Basically, going, hey, go ahead and get some money out of Ted. And I remember uh, the next day, Eric Bischoff calling me up and asking if I'd said that. I said, yeah, I guess I had. So I was, it was a harsh reprimand. Um, and then uh, I think on that same day, Kevin Sullivan called me up. Uh, he had heard I was leaving to have my ear fixed. And he said, brother, can you put that off a little while? Um, uh, Evad had been injured. Remember that was uh, yeah. uh, Dave Sullivan who uh, had dyslexia, was a big Hogan fan, was teaming up with Kevin, and he wanted to know if I would take uh, Kevin's place to take on the Nasty Boys. And, uh, okay. And so we ended up being pushed and even winning the, w the WCW tag team titles while I was kind of in the doghouse. So it was, like, it didn't bury me by any means, not by any means. Uh, I mean, WCW, it was always going to be a secondary title, but it was a nice run, and it was with Sullivan. I owed a lot to Sullivan because we'd, he'd done for me in 1990. So I had given my notice, but they pushed me. They pushed me, and I think I said at the show uh, that you were at in Huntsville a couple weeks ago, I was like, they pushed me, but they never once sat me down and asked me to reconsider. Yeah. So if they had ever sat me down and said, hey, look, Hulk's going to need some opponents. We think a heel Cactus Jack would be a great opponent for Hulk. Uh, we'd like to keep you on for another, you know, for another year. Uh, then I may have uh, taken that ramp. But no one ever sat me down and asked me to reconsider. 
and uh, so I was, you know, setting up my uh, not my debut with uh, with ECW. Is I'd done something in conjunction with ECW as part of WCW, including but, the tag titles, which we'll talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah. That was that got me some heat, and that was a good promo good too. Oh, fantastic! That was a great promo. So when I got all the heat for spitting on the titles, my question to Rick was, "Did you see the promo? Did you see the pro?" Like in context. It's, I'm not burying WCW just because I spit on their title. I, I specifically mentioned how much I love that title, how much it meant to me, but that I'd lost even more that night. And the fact that I'd lost to Sabu, and I'm saying that and putting him over as strongly as I could because it was told, I was told how important this alliance was. So I was doing what I thought was best for WCW and came across like I was burying WCW, which I was not. I uh, I just can't help but wonder, you know, the old hypothetical. What would Cactus Jack and Hulk Hogan look like? At, I don't know, say Halloween Havoc '94. That could have been something else. Yeah, uh, because Hulk and I are both limited physically. Yeah. But um, as far as getting people involved in his storylines, man, he's got a tra- track record. That's Pretty much second to none. It, it would have been a lot better than the with the Dungeon of Doom we got. Let's Is that what they that. got? Is that they got the Dungeon of Doom with Earthquake? Was he thought he was a fish and yeah, it was a lot of less uh, yeah, than stuff. If yeah, if we had done the, the turn and they give me some mic time, uh, I think it could have been good. I think Hulk and Mick Foley could have been. Am I, now I'm talking about myself in third person. <laughs> I think Hulk and I. Could have uh, could have had a good match in TNA if I hadn't left there. Yeah, early. And I, I've uh, when I'm asked about Hulk, I'll say two types of people in the world: the type of person who's going to pretend it's not a big deal to be in the ring with him, and the type of person who's going to acknowledge that it is a big deal to be in the ring with him. And when I saw we had chemistry in the ring, I thought oh, we could have done him. We could have done a match. Not saying it would have been explosive. Not saying it would have ranked high up there on the five star meter, but in '94, uh, yeah, '94. Yeah. I'm talking about oh, 2010. Yeah. But in '94, oh yeah, yeah, we could have we we could have burned it down in '94. Sure. Yeah. You wind up coming back to uh, WCW here, and uh, you're going to rejoin the company in August. Um, at this point, Steve's been there since May. He's got to be somebody you might think. Hey, I could work with that guy, but yeah. you're both coming in on the heel right. side of things, right? I'll tell you, more importantly than who's a heel or babyface, Steve and I clicked immediately. I think world-class. No, I did meet him. I did meet him in Texas. Sorry about that. Because I I got a hold of Jerry Jarrett in uh, summer of 90 before I got back. Uh, it was after I'd left uh, WCW, I'm clearly before I came back in 91, and I was put on a Friday night show, coming back as kind of a baby face. And I did meet Steve there, and we hit it off right away. So that when I saw him again in uh, WCW, we were we were riding partners, you know? Not two, there was not a, you were in a group of four people at that time, almost all the time, sometimes more than that. But you generally had at least three people in a hotel room, if not a fourth. One on each bed, one on the cot, one on the floor, but probably more often than not, one on each bed and one on the, one on the cot. 
So let's talk through that. Uh, how would the, the riding partner stuff begin? Does everyone start in Atlanta or do you all fly to your destination and meet up there and wait on each other? For the well, you know what? In 91, when I rejoined, it was easy for me because Abdullah was my uh, riding partner. He was my tag team partner. And usually you had to have at least three people in order to uh, get the company to cover that cost. That's something they did that WWE did not do. They cover your rental cars. At least when I was there. But because I have Ab- had Abdullah, we were allowed to do it with just the two of us, and I was allowed to rent that caddy. So it's crazy that I haven't rented a Cadillac in years, right? You never see me show up outside. I'm usually in a minivan, right? Never. If I see a minivan, brother, I'm all over that thing. It's like a Lamborghini to me. Um, but I had Abby with me, and uh, so Abby and I rode together. For a few weeks, we had uh, Brian Knighton is his real name, uh, Axel Rotten. Uh, rode with us and uh, we enjoyed those times but it was really just me and Abby until he left the company we talked last week about guys that didn't want to put over people because of Japan I was at the house show I think I think it was the day after well no I don't want to say what day it was but it was an Omni show and he was going to put over he was asked to put over Dustin Runnels and uh, that was the last we saw of Abdullah in um in WCW. So then after Abby left, now I've got to find my riding partners. And more often than not, it was Steve. So I really enjoyed that time with Steve and William Regal, you know, a few other people. But those were my two main guys for many months. So you try to get yourselves on similar schedules as far as when you arrive to the airport and all yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly how we did it. Yeah. Because once 2000 hit and I was the uh, commissioner, then I was getting into town when everyone else was already in the loop. Yeah. And that's when I started driving by myself, rooming by myself, and creating the habits that have carried over for the last, you know, 20 plus years. So let's say you guys are going to ride together. How do you decide who's driving and who sits where? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when I was with Corny in the midnights, I was always in the back seat. I was a good wheel man. I was. Uh, uh, Steve thought I had the worst musical taste in the business. <laughs> <laughs> that might be why we didn't ride together in WWE. Uh, I'd say I, I, I rented quite a bit. I mean, I was a driver quite a bit of the time. Steve was a driver. I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know a correct uh, ratio to give you. Do you flip you. a coin for who gets the bed? No, every third night. The, the, you rotate. Yeah, rotate. Yeah, so it was... Uh, it was a democratic process okay. because we all <coughs> split the room. And there's that you know famous cookie story. I love bringing that to life uh, on stage. You got to go see a live. Uh, got to see one. it live, and you have to hopefully, if I don't do it, request it. And what works perfectly about that is I've had great comics like Brendan Burns, uh, Jennifer um, Gen- Jennifer Bloodsworth, who's a WWE. Writer, uh, she went on the road and did an amazing DDP. Tim Sullivan did a great DDP. But other times I'll just bring somebody out who's willing to drop F-bombs. And they get almost as much laughter and sometimes even more than the the comics do. Um, But that came about because it was DDP's turn to be on the cot. Steve and I got beds that night. And uh, there's other stories I told, you know, involving Steve. Uh, again, touching on a subject we touched on last week that should not be funny, but were funny at the time. And yes. I'll, I'll argue getting 
getting stranded on a gay beach, even in the year 2022. It's funny. It's still kind of funny. So, who the hell gets stuck sleeping on the floor? Nobody. And at that point, we wouldn't have a fourth guy. Yeah. And if we did, I would dare say that, look, you do the mathematics, right? Uh, I was a sleep cheaper guy. Uh, my first week in WWE, Vince McMahon saw me, stopped me to say hello, and he saw something behind my back. It was almost like when the Big Show had something behind his back, and Vince said, let me see it. Damn it, let me see it. And Big Show turned around on SNL, and he had uh, the little fellow. Yes. <laughs> his name. His arm. Chris Catan, maybe. Chris Catan, yeah, Chris Catan. He, he was like, God. Vince was like, look, put the little fellow down. Big show. He's like, can I keep him? That's what I was like, except when I turned around. What, what do you have there? Or nothing. Damn it, let me see. He probably didn't say that, but, oh, come on, Mick, let me see it. And I turned around. It was a book called America's Cheap Sleeps, How to Stay Anywhere in the United States for Under $30. So doing the math, if you're healing a room, which is a threesome. Three to a room. It's ten dollars a night. Yeah. If you are splitting a room, it's fifteen dollars a night. And not only do you have to sleep on the cot for the extra five, but you don't have the receipt for your taxes. So I think at a certain point we thought, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe that's a good five dollars to spend. <laughs> I'm just curious as we're trying to set the stage here because we know we're going to be talking about a retirement match. I'm just curious, did you know going into Royal Rumble, I'm probably re ready to wind it down or are you hurting as a result of that match and then you come back through the curtain and Vince is very unhappy with what happened and you think, you know, maybe now's time. When does it start to enter your mind that I'm getting close here? Conrad, I'm trying to go back in time and recall if I knew that uh, that we were going to follow up the rumble with the Hell in a Cell. Right. Or whether, we, I'd have to go back. I think uh, Eddie Guerrero had an injury. No, no, that was later. Eddie came in later, the uh, elbow injury. There may have been some deciding factor that, uh, there was a big deciding factor. And I wrote about this, and man, I'm not here to hurt Big Show's feelings or, you know, but... At that time, it was thought people had gotten in his brain, you know, really messed with him, not intentionally, in trying to in trying to make him the best, best big show that he could be. Now you've you got to be more aggressive, which meant faster. So now you got a, the biggest man on the planet, and he's instead of one real deliberate and effective boot, he thinks. Got his head, got to deliver five or six of them fast. And he was just losing course. And that's when Vince asked me and I pulled me and Hunter aside and said, man, I need a, Steve had been hurt and they need something to carry them over to mania season. And pulled us aside. And at that point, it was Vince's belief that show wasn't on that level that he wanted, needed him to be. And uh, I had essentially retired a couple months earlier. I had I was heavy. I my knees were really hurting. Um, I had made what I think was a really bad. Uh, there was a really pivotal moment, Conrad, where I I should have realized. Okay, I'm as more over than I could have. I don't want to say could have dreamed, but I probably dreamed I could be more over <laughs> than I realistically thought, you know? This, this thing is going so well. I felt like I needed to be 275, 280 when I came into the company, 
I need like uh, you know I I I, I held 275, 280 after I left WCW. I held it for those 15 months. I got myself into what I thought, you know, was really good shape for my ECW run, my uh, IWA Japan run, did the indies, really wanted to try to make every match as good as I could. Um, but going down below that, I thought it would have been counterproductive to facing The Undertaker. Like right. I needed that little bit of padding. But once I got that over and I started having problems with my knees, I should have realized fans are going to accept me at 250. Right. You know, like I should have done whatever I could to go down 20, 30 pounds. Instead, when I put on 20 or 30 pounds, it really started having an effect on my knees. Uh, if you look back at all those matches I did after maybe my first year in the company where I wore knee pads, no knee pads. So there's that famous photo of... Uh, DX holding me aloft and road dog shouting in the, you know, in the background. Uh, and I've got the title held up in the air. Um, and you can see just uh, no knee pads, a hole in the brown tights. And I went in the last two or three years of my run there in WWE without any knee pads, constantly hitting, hitting the, not just the mat, but the concrete outside. And just little by little, all these little cracks start forming in my knees to where when I had them examined, um, the doctor, orthopedic guy, whose name will come to me, is I was his first patient. And when I was 12 years old, I broke my thumb as a cat. Dr. Liguri calls over his, uh, his colleagues, and they all marvel at this 34-year-old man with the 80-year-old knees. Wow. They, were just, they looked arthritic to the point where they, it's what you usually see in somebody much older. So it was brought on by all those, um, the real physical style. And I wouldn't say I was taking risks when I was dropping to my knees outside, but I realized trauma to the yeah, knees. Yeah, trauma to the knees. And when I did the cactus clothesline, after the first maybe 10, 12 times where I was really out of control doing it, meaning in a good way. I mean, I was taking my risks on that one. And then I started holding on longer, uh, which lessens the risk, but also understanding and fully appreciating that when I did that, I'd be hitting my thighs hard on the uh, apron mm -hmm. and then that creates these bruises and discomforts and so i was really uncomfortable and a lot of pain when i was coming down to that final end uh, but in either october or november uh we can check back because it was that historic night uh, that bruce has probably talked about where i said i don't know i'm supposed to be searching for val venus and like the bowels that was that this was in philadelphia and he takes me like to this, you know, the seedy, uh, uh, it's kind of you know, like uh, the bowels, the inner workings, you know, peep shows and things like that. And I said, Bruce, I don't know. Like, you know, mankind's kind of become this family friendly character. Right. And now I'm searching for Val Venus in peep shows and I'm opening up the curtains. <laughs> you know, you got guys with their pants down at their ankles. And then I say, I start getting into the thing. I, Bruce, I need as many quarters as you can get me, you know? So after Ripper, you pervert this. And then I open up one of the things. I yanked the guy out of there. And I said, is that Kay Parker? Kay Parker was a great <laughs> starlet of the late 70s. And now when they cut away, I'm coming running out. And I've got quarters falling out of my pocket, giving the illusion I've been in there for hours. Tremendous. You know? And uh, I think they're towing the car. I said, wait, wait. And I think I, I I said to Bruce after the car gets towed, I said, Bruce, uh, 
you know that I was going to get like that emotionally? Oh, yeah, yeah. We just, we gave you lip service. Okay, Mick, we'll do the family-friendly PG stuff while you're searching the bowels of the building. And we'll just count on you being the type of guy who will run out of a building with a pocket full of quarters. <laughs> but what was pivotal about, pivotal, pivotal about that night was that um, that was the night Al Snow and I worked with Bob and Crash Holly. And I was SmackDown taping, and I fell down twice in the match. Couldn't the the uh, patented uh, catch the boot, spin me around, but I come back with the clothesline. There you go. Which D, your friend DDP took like the day after I left WCW in 94. And I was like, DDP, you're taking all my stuff. He's like, well, bro, you're not here anymore. I was like, <laughs> one day I might be back again, and I'd right. like to have that stuff. Yeah, yeah, DDP had never done that catch the boot spin <laughs> clothesline. And he may have added this business to it, but um, – I talked to Vince. I was so embarrassed that night. I said, Vince, man, I I think I got to hang up the boots. At that point, it was the sneakers, which I started wearing because of the problems with the knees. And that's where he encouraged me to um, drop some pounds. And I said, Vince, I can't remember where I live anymore. Oh. He says, what's that? I said, I drive past my house. Like, I can't remember things. And he said, you've just had your last match. Wow. So that's when people talk about Vince being selfish and driving people too hard, I'll counter with, all right, maybe there are elements of that. But when push came to shove and he heard that one of his guys was having trouble with memory, it was more important to him that I be healthy. So by now, you know that Mick and I have spent a lot of time talking about some of these death matches and some of these bloody wars that he had, but you probably also know that that blood was intentional. See, he wants to get cut accidentally. But unfortunately, a lot of us do it. If you're using a cheap razor, you're getting those nicks, those cuts, that irritation. And I got to tell you, I got pretty annoyed with that whole subscription razor concept a few years ago. I found they just kept stacking up. What I enjoy most about Henson shaving is that it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It feels old school. Seriously, just the actual blade handle itself. Dude, it's metal. It's not some cheap piece of plastic that's going to break on you or frustrate you. This is like, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to last a lifetime, but it feels substantial. It feels like something our grandparents would have used. And at the same time, man, you get a whole pack of these straight razors. Dude, this is old school, but here's what's cool about it. And here's why I believe that you got to meet Henson shaving. They're a family owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the international space station and the Mars Rover. And now they're bringing that same technology and engineering to your shaving experience. You see, I've learned that razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble. Well, the more nicks, the more cuts, the more scrapes. You see a bad shave isn't a blade problem. It's an extension problem. So by using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. It's also got a clog-free design. You see, this razor has built-in channels to evacuate the hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. Seriously, Henson Shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. Let me explain, there's no plastic. There's no subscriptions. There's no proprietary blades. There's no planned obsolescence. 
the Henson razor works with standard old school dual age blades, but it gives you that, that new age, that new school tech. I mean, dude, these folks have made stuff for space. You darn right. They can make stuff for your face. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only like three to five bucks a year to replace the blades. I'm a big believer in this. I was overwhelmed with the value. Seriously, you're going to get more blades than you can imagine. In my first shave, I have to admit, I was a little intimidated. I haven't worked with a straight razor like this before, but dude, it was easy and I felt like a badass when it was done. I'm going to tell you, the design is incredible. The durability is awesome. It's super affordable. My buddy Cassio Kid came over to watch the Royal Rumble and I had told him about the razor before and I said, hey man, I got to show this to you. And I showed him the blade. I showed him the razor. It's, it's something you got to see. I recommend it. It's the most manly thing you can do today. It's time to say no to subscriptions and say yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley to pick the razor for you and use code Foley and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades. When you head to H E N S O N S H A V I N G dot com slash Foley and use the promo code Foley, hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley. Uh, you wrote in your, uh, in your book, I'm proud of my short lived chemistry with Gerald Briscoe that saw us somehow managed to steal verbiage from Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd arguments and repeat it verbatim on raw. I'm thrilled to have played some small part of Kurt Angle's rapid ascent to superstardom and have looked on with great interest as other performers slowly make gains in becoming rocks, stone colds and hunters of the future. Yeah. Perhaps most of all, I enjoyed my talks with Stephanie McMahon yeah. and I always look forward to her infectious smile, which makes every day seem a little nicer. Whenever I get mad at her dad, which is quite often, yeah. I think of her and marvel at how, despite his ridiculous workload, Mr. McMahon found the time to be a good father along the way. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that Stephanie was a highlight. We don't hear a lot about Stephanie behind the scenes. What was your relationship like with her here? And why was she a bright spot? Well, first of all, that was put in as a little teaser for a potential angle down the road, which okay. was there if we needed it. But I wouldn't say something that wasn't true. Stephanie at that point was in the interim period where she was going from marketing. Uh, she, this was, she was in between marketing. She may have even been simultaneously marketing in the marketing department and she would show up as an on-air talent, but she wasn't in charge of creative or had anything to do with creative. So when she was at TV, she was just one of the guys. And she was just real, and, and I, you know, looking now, like her and Triple H did have a relationship, but nobody knew that at the time. It wasn't until I remember Big Show saying uh, during the rehearsal for Rock Saturday Night Live, like, do you think something's going on there? And I was like, no, no. And it turns out he was, he was onto something. But I always liked Stephanie. I'm still a Stephanie McMahon guy. Uh, big believer in her, and uh, I know when I uh, wrote the, Stephanie did the she did the forward of my Christmas memoir, mm -hmm. and to show you why she is who she is, uh, the publisher was like, "Mick, we kind of need that forward." She actually just eviscerated me verbally at my urging. Like uh, when I finally started to get on track with the uh, GM role. It's where I realized, okay, I'm in a different atmosphere. I have to play by the rules. I don't get to write the rules anymore. But instead of me trying to memorize someone else's verbiage, which was really difficult for me with the head injuries, 
I would write out promos, and even if they only took a few lines, it felt like they were mine. Right. So Stephanie's line was, isn't it sad? She put me over and then talked about how how far I'd fallen and said, isn't it odd how the man who used to be able to take so much can now take very little at all? And it was a... It was a verbal chewing down, and I had asked her if I could see her afterwards, and she didn't know what I wanted to talk about. And I said, I was wondering if you would write the forward to my book. And she kind of like went, oh, I, I wasn't expecting that. And she was really happy to do it. Now, uh, six weeks goes by or whatever, and I said, Stephanie, like, um, I hate to rush you, but the you know, publisher really needs that. And she goes, okay, I'm just about finished with my first draft. And I said, first draft? I said, I wrote mine and I wrote my forward for DDP in 45 minutes while I watched television. And it was a pretty good first draft. But I will just say that's why she is who she is because she really, uh, uh, you know, she expected a lot from herself. You know, her father expected a lot from her and she uh, delivered. You never see her mess up a promo. She was there to rescue me when I couldn't remember what I was doing. And one of my fondest memories uh, in wrestling period is that when Dewey first started as a writer, uh, he was assigned the task of rewriting a promo. Because we got time, right? We have yeah, a little yeah, bit of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where I just thought, you know, going back to this is 2000, fall of, fall of 2016, I think. So I've just taken over this role in probably summer. I took it over in July of 2016. Uh, general manager for Raw with Stephanie as the commissioner and my boss. And no one has mentioned anything about the fact that Triple H interfered with the mask, uh, match costing, uh, some, I can't remember what title was at stake. Uh, we had a couple of, the, the first time was when Triple H had interfered. And I thought we have to have some kind of friction here or else I'm just in a corner in my second week in the job. It's me against her. I thought there should be some gray area. And I got maybe 10% of what I wanted out of uh, Vince. And then Stephanie and I on our own went and cut the promo our own way. Uh, and there was a lot of tension. We're, we are overriding Vince's edict. Mm -hmm. We cut the promo. He sees us cutting the promo. He goes, what the hell is going on here? And uh, Stephanie goes, Dad, uh, Mick and I did this just to see what happened. We'd like you to take a look at it. And, what, and it was about a three-minute segment. And he looked at it afterwards. It seemed like an eternity. nodded his head and went, we'll do it your way. And as he's walking down the hallway, Road Dog comes up to me and Stephanie goes, you know, you all know you can't get your own way for like six weeks after that. I said, I know, I know. Let him turn the corner. And as soon as he turned the corner, we hugged and... We were just so happy that we had stood up for ourselves. And in a similar uh, segment, there was no explanation for why nobody came in or nobody addressed the fact that a uh, main event had been tampered with. Can't remember which main event it was. And so I was allowed to pitch an idea, which we did, and Dewey sat down with me and we wrote it together. And then he got to see a real pro, Stephanie, in action with his dad nailing it on one take, delivering it with authority. It was like she read it, got it. It's got a photographic mind, I right. believe. Or else she just has worked really hard to develop her uh, her uh, memorization skills. And she was an invaluable aid to me when my memorization was really a problem. 
It's so uh, cool to hear nice stories about Stephanie McMahon because it often feels like, you know, it's just um, it becomes an opportunity to just bash McMahon's anytime. Yeah. You know, and and I think it's nice that we get to hear about. It's the, uh, it's so fun to to go back and think about the genesis of this whole character, and I'm excited for us to break down the pieces of ECW where you had. A little bit of an overlap where they knew that you were going to be doing the yeah. character, but nobody knew what it was. But uh, your uh, your lawsuit did make the Observer, by the way. Oh, it did, uh, huh? So that was that was <laughs> at least out there. But uh, that Corpus Christi match was March tenth uh, that you had that dark match to sort of get used to the character. Uh, take me through that dark match where you finished up with ECW straight to Corpus Christi on no sleep. Yeah. It's not really a tryout match you're signed, but boy, Vince is watching that 13 inch monitor. And if it doesn't go well, who knows? Um, when you come through the curtain, how did you think you were received? I thought I was received pretty well. It seemed like it was received pretty well. Um, Sometimes guys have these persona changes. So like Moondog back in the day tried to be a part of demolition. Right. Didn't work. Was there a concern? What if they start yelling cactus? Or does that even cross your mind? It, it crossed my mind in ECW strongholds and in the Northeast where the cactus, you know, the more people gravitated towards being heel fans. I don't want to, uh, I know you're a proud um, Alabama resident. But let's just say uh, in Huntsville, the dudes were still over, as in the dynamic dudes. You like so where they were still that traditional base that got behind traditional baby faces. Whereas in the Northeast, it's like, dude, you got to show me something different. Right. So there was a night and day difference. I mean, it reached the point with the dynamic dudes in uh, the Northeast that uh, fans actually body painted uh, the words. Uh, Shane sucks Johnny's, you know, and yeah. and what was really inspiring to me is that a few of the body painters were willing to be the blank spaces yeah. between the words. That's commitment. It is. That's commitment. So while the dudes are being hated in some parts of the, uh, many parts of the country, they were still over in Huntsville, brother. <laughs> Got to give them props for that. Give them props for that. Um, so it was worried that more so in the ECW strongholds that people would be chanting for cactus, uh, or at least know who I was. And that would, uh, look, man, I, I love, I love all fans. Right. And, uh, I, we're all smart fans to some degree. That doesn't mean we have to be snarky fans. Yes, I agree. And so for example, when Bray Wyatt came out and fans were chanting Husky Harris, it's, yeah, it's like, awful. Are you guys, do you realize you are putting this man's livelihood in jeopardy because you are going to tor possibly torpedo a premiere because you want people to know that you know? Like, please, you have to a certain point, be a part of the, be a part of the fun. You know, that you do a wink and a nod, but just chanting Husky Harris to show you could do it. Man, that, I'm glad that they didn't pull the plug, but the plug could have been pulled. You know, Vince could have said, this will never work. Um, I mean, think about The Rock's first, you know, year oh, yeah, or so. That was yeah. really rough. And what if, you know, when Stone, when Stone Cold came out, if people were still chanting Stunning, Stunning or Ringmaster? Yeah. Or, yeah. They've got to have a chance to grow and evolve. Right. And I think for the most part, we, we do that as fans. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate when that's not the case, but it was, it was worried that I was going to get that type of reaction in Philadelphia for Mind Games, for example. 
so I had to come out and cut a, a, a promo on the fans that I would never go back to that boiler room. Uncle Paul, please don't make me go back to that boiler room. And that seemed to work. Um, but by and large, uh, when I came back, the agents were complimentary. I think uh, uh, Chief J. Strongbow saw what I was kind of doing with the, the walk. And uh, he suggested, uh, him and George, or George Steele suggested putting a lift in one shoe to the accentuate limp. the limp. And I didn't do, did not do that. I would have made running and walking and all that difficult. Um, but they were, they suggested things, uh, but pretty much left me alone to create. Um, I look at the first promo photo of me as mankind and it's against a green background. I'm kind of like mm -hmm. grabbing my, my, you know, my, my, uh, my mask. And it's clear I didn't know what that character was going to be yet. And uh, we really started, you know, I mean, I put a lot of work into it. The company obviously did their part with Undertaker doing more than anybody by seeing something in that character that he wanted to work with. But they left me alone by and large to grow so that I went from just hating, hating that uh, mask, uh, especially um, when I did that run-in with The Undertaker, and I couldn't appreciate whether or not it had gone right, because, hey, you're so nervous before you do these. These yeah. are life-changing angles. I'd have to compare it to the way I felt when I was inside the giant gift box in uh, September of 1991 in Macon, Georgia. I came out of there I'm literally saying prayers because I've got a small infant child, you know, I've got a wife, and I think we I don't, we hadn't purchased a home yet, but uh, I had responsibilities. And now another life-changing event. I'm about to attack The Undertaker. I came out of there. I couldn't breathe. Um... I was so blown up just from doing that one angle, mainly due to nerves. And I remember talking to my wife. It was on a, on a payphone, not a cell phone, and just saying, maybe I can do this for two or three months and become Cactus Jack. I just, I just, I, I hated it, hated it. And It was mostly the mask and the breathing? The mask and the breathing that I hated about it. And it, and it was uncomfortable on my head. Um and I, again, there was a big part of me that still didn't think Cactus Jack was broken, didn't need to be fixed. Um, but we, I stuck with it, and I started seeing the results on a nightly basis and started seeing that I could, even before I realized that I thought that there was a, uh, any chance that Cactus Jack would come back, especially at Madison Square Garden, in front of my parents in the same building I grew up hitchhiking to and taking trains to and seeing Snooka dive off the top of the cage. Even before all that, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work. I'm gonna get to find that dark place to retreat to, which turns out to be the bowels of the building, the boiler room. I'm gonna work on the rocking back and forth. I'm gonna, going to do as much as I can to distance this character from, uh, from Cactus Jack. Kept some of the same moves, the, the elbow, uh, flying elbow, double. I wanted to ask about that. As the mankind character, are, are you? We know you've discussed the finisher, but did they give you any sort of, hey, we would like for your style to look like this or the signature moves? Is there any of that talk of what to borrow or what to keep from Cactus Jack? I knew it was going to be limited, fairly limited, and this is where, uh, man, you know, some 
I think a lot of guys in the business could benefit from having, you know, being reined in. So, for example, when I do the live shows, I thought at first I benefited by the fact that I can talk about anything. You know, I can reference uh, popular culture. I can talk about politics. I can you know, do observational. I can do anything. And then once I realized, wait a second, like, you know, this is the, the strong point. And I went to see Willie Nelson perform at the Westbury Music Theater, uh, which now has a corporate name. Uh, and I would either see people on their way up or their way down right? Uh, or plateaued. You didn't see people at the top of their career. So I'd seen some acts to me that looked like they'd rather be anywhere else but on stage. And then I see Willie Nelson. And I thought, oh, man, there's no place this guy would rather be tonight than on that stage. And that's when I realized he's he's jamming. He's not just playing note-by-note note renditions. So I thought, if I can go on stage and jam and take stories that may already be known but find ways to make them fun and different and interesting, now I'm not just a guy reciting golden oldies. Now I'm Willie Nelson telling wrestling stories. Um, so I... I I have no idea what that has to do with your previous statement. Uh, no, I just, I, I just wanted to know, you know, move-wise. Oh, the... yeah, yeah. So, in other words, by limiting what I could do, what I limiting the parameters, it made what I did much stronger. And I think a lot of wrestlers would, you know, would improve if they kept that, I've got this move, this works with the character. Anything outside of the this move set doesn't mean you can't throw in a, a surprise move. Undertaker doing the dive once a year means so much more than Undertaker every doing, night. The, doing the dive every night. Uh, so when I realized, all right, I'm going to stick to certain moves, and they're going to be kind of realistic, and there's going to be at that nowadays you can't do the clawing and the because it's seen as lazy stuff. It's not seen as good work. But when you had a character that was based in brutality and you wanted your face in those shots and you want the foreboding almost horror movie shot here comes a bad guy from behind he's coming in slow you know we know that for example the best way to pull a sock out of your waistband to use it is from here to here but that's not what we do we go from here to up here right and now i'm going to see this is baron Mikel cicluna who a friend of mine, John Arizzi, referred to lovingly as the fakest of all the wrestlers because all his stuff looked hokey. But when you go for the foreign object, you're thinking logic. okay, this is something I could be disqualified for. Better be discreet. I, 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 yeah, better be discreet. That's where you're going to make the here, but that's not what we do in wrestling. We come up here, down, around, boom, pull it out. Here's the reveal. And so, you know, our, our motions are grand especially you're, play, you're playing to the worst yeah seat. yeah and especially before the days of high def and especially uh, you know a lot of companies still counted on that hard camera shot bill watts came into uh wcw and he didn't want to see guys calling spots thought you minimize that by concentrating on the hard camera shot but then you make your entire product boring at the risk of somebody finding out guys call spots yeah uh kind of self-defeating um, but you were, in a lot of cases, still playing not only the worst seat in the house, but, you know, the moves were grand. Vince is still grand, right? Oh, yeah. There's no, so, because he's still playing, you know, uh, I, I, and one of even my- Even his walk. Even the walk, right. The walk became more and more exaggerated yeah. as he went, right? Because uh, at first it was just like a little pep in his step. 
and then it got to the point where it was hard to keep a straight face yeah. when he came down because it was so ridiculous. So I compared and contrasted my experiences working on camera with Mr. McMahon and working on camera with Willem Dafoe. Wow. And I was looking at Willem Dafoe do these 20 takes, and I was like, but he's not really doing anything. And then you see it back on camera, and it looks like he's got this entire you know blend of facial expressions and and who's to say that doesn't work because it does but you also can't argue that vince mcmahon doing the big gulp of fear doesn't work because it if any actor tries on the big screen to portray fear the way that vince did that's likely his last acting role for a long time but it works so well Mm -hmm. we are still finding ways to balance the you know the uh, acceptance of the high definition and not having to be so much larger than life with the fact that ultimately it comes down to the biggest stage of them all and you are still selling to the to the worst seat in the house but you remember who the agent was for that match I don't, but I can tell you agents didn't have as much of a hand as they do now. Uh, and that they would listen to what you had to say. They might have some feedback. I don't remember there being a lot of feedback. I, uh, I know you said earlier you were sort of going with uh, let's ask forgiveness rather than permission. Yeah. Was there anything that you did that when you came back through the curtain, Vince said, God damn it. No, not that night. Uh, not that night. Uh I later went, my wife and I went to see Winona, and uh, there was someone on her crew had been underneath the ring mm. uh, while Triple H and I were up there. And I don't know what it is they did, you know. Um, like with the table that that is so infamously broken, you know, at ringside, that thing is like the brick house that the third little pig wrote. Unless somebody does something to it, it's really well constructed. And it's only, you can go through it. I mean, I think the idea was, I thought a pile driver was going to put him through it. Um, And it didn't, you know. And especially as I found out uh, at Mania a couple months later, when I missed big time on that elbow, uh, I thought I broke my sternum. Yeah. Because you don't hit it flat, it's not going to go. And if, you know, I hit my sternum on the corner of that thing, my body was broken in half. So, um yeah, uh, I uh, I thought the table. I thought the table would go. I don't know why. I'm at a loss. I don't know. Pick up the pieces for me here. Do you think um, you know? Th- there's a lot of, uh, for lack of a better word, magic involved in this. You need the cage to tear to get out. Yeah. And then you need the cage to tear to get in. Then you have to rearrange sort of a. Was Richie Posner involved in that? Is oh, he yeah, one of the yeah. unsung heroes of R- that? <laughs> Richie was. I'm I'm wondering whether I should tell the absolute truth about this match and then uh, ruin Let's the aura of it. I got to be honest. Uh, I got there to a warehouse, you know, a few nights before the show. It's in the Observer uh, that you did a walkthrough on the 23rd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's not in there is that Shane McMahon must have taken that bump three times in a row. Okay. <laughs> without any fear or hesitation whatsoever. <laughs> so he was like, no, he doesn't even. See, Shane's fearless. I might be courageous because I act in the face of fear. <laughs> Shane's fearless. He wasn't concerned at all. Uh, here, here you go, boom, boom, boom. He, I don't know if he did three. He certainly did it once without any hesitation. And uh, 
I didn't think it was a perfect bump because I thought I went through awkwardly and I thought I had my hands out and my thought I went butt first. I would have liked to have landed flat. And I thought the gimmicking was too much to where it looked like I landed on a pillow. Uh, I know, I know Jer- <laughs> Jericho took a lot of flack for looking oh, yeah. like he landed on a pillow. That doesn't mean it was not a scary moment when Correct. he's descending from that height. And it's not really up to him what it looks like once he lands. What does so, fans expect? Really fall on stainless steel? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not Jericho's fault at all. No. Just like it wouldn't have been my fault if fans had chosen to accept that, uh, that I had landed on a pillow-like surface. My first thought when I hit was, uh, it didn't hurt enough to look good. Okay. Didn't knock the wind out of me. And maybe slightly, but you know, you compare that to, uh, you know. You were expecting worse. Because of the damage that I'd done, which you can still see, you know, them teeth that were knocked out, you know, with the cell match uh, in 98. So I'm still feeling the fallout from that. And I was unconscious for 42 seconds. Now you fast forward a, a year and a half and I, and I don't feel like I'm hurt enough for the bump to look good. But uh, I had accrued a lot of goodwill. There'd been a lot of good oh, storytelling. Yeah. And I guess I'm in the minority when I think it didn't look believable enough. Does it ever cross your mind? I know we're getting way down the rabbit hole, but this is such a good dialogue. I got to ask when you're in the heat of the moment and a guy's not really selling for you, does it cross your mind to, from an ego standpoint? Well, I'm not going to sell as hard either. Yes, it does. Yeah, it really does. If you're not going to yeah. make me look good, why would I continue, right? Yeah, and I was lucky in the sense that um, there is no story. You can you can his, analyze the annals of history. There's no story of me stretching someone in the ring. No. Beating someone up backstage. No. <laughs> but I had a lineup of really good-looking bumps. And basically, I was going to make you look good, but you had to help me out. Yes. You, know, you had to help me out a little bit. You had to make my stuff look good. And there were some, I mean, you go in there and you'd be in some situations where maybe you can't talk to someone before a match. And I'm thinking specifically like 86 when I'm wrestling for Nigerian TV. It's a Brooklyn, New York, highly, uh, highly you know, Muslim show. Uh, I'm wrestling a you know, Muslim guy and he's he's not. He's not doing much for me because he's trying to look good in front of the crowd. And I'm in that terrible position now where I have to try to look strong because I'm going to take on the Nigerian champion. Right. And, and it's so they'll and they'll put in these 25 year old matches on TV, the same matches they see every single week. These, these people in Nigeria grew up on like Mighty Igor. Wow. And Mighty Igor was kind of a one trick pony, you know, a little bit like he was like Ivan Putski type character. But he'd been seen there for 25 years, and then they would just edit in a new match recorded in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I remember that being a particularly difficult match and trying to look good, uh, trying to get my stuff in. I mean, even with the legendary Power Udi in Nigeria, I would try, I, you know, I, I would try to make him work for it, and guys would be surprised. I remember Brian Hildebrand telling me, uh, he was surprised at, at the match I had with Bruiser Bedlam because he said Bruiser wasn't used to people working that hard with him, you know. Yeah. And uh, I I understood I didn't have much in the way of offense, you know. I didn't have an unlimited arsenal there, and I had to make sure that what I did do looked good. 
Guys, by now you've heard about Blue Chew on our program for a long time. Mick and I are big believers in Blue Chew, and we want you to try it. Sincerely, this isn't just for guys who have a <clears throat> problem. This is for guys who are trying to leave a lasting impression. For guys who want to enhance their experience. Think about it as PEDs for your PENIS. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredient as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime y'all day or night. So plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple guys is three steps. Number one, you sign up at bluechew.com. Number two, you'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, number three, you'll receive your prescription in just a few days. Blue Chew's tablets are made here in the USA. They're prepared to ship directly to your door. And by the way, it's in a discreet package. So don't worry about the mailman knowing your business. Okay. The best part, it's all done online. That means you get to skip the awkward conversations. You don't even have to go to the doctor's office. There's no waiting in line at the pharmacy. It doesn't get any easier than this. And I've never recommended blue chew to someone. And they came back and said, oh, it didn't work. Everybody's like, Hey man, uh, thanks for the pro tip. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it y'all. Let's have some better sex. Shall we? And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try blue chew free and use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. We thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. So when you're meeting with Vince and you're having the discussion about the claw, I think you wrote in your book, it's around this time that you pitched the idea for two sets of music. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, had you said, Hey, I want it to sound something like this yeah. or did you? Okay. Yeah. A gentle piano. Um, I mean, I, I, if they come out with strings, I would not have cared, but it was basically gentle, soothing music, uh, using the piano. And that would harken back to that love of music I had before I put it, took a hammer to, to my fingers. I think it was a ball peen hammer just for the sake of, uh, did you work with Jim Johnston on the music process? No, Jim came up with that on his own and, uh, it home was run. home run up until I became a baby face. Yeah. And now it's dreary music. It was, and it doesn't have a Pavlovian moment where people are gonna <gasps> catch their breath and realize yes. it. It's so it's no gong. Yeah, it didn't lend itself to a pop. It lent itself a uh, feeling of football. it was eerie and creepy. Yeah, though. which is what we wanted. It's not what I wanted. By the time that character started lightening up, you know, and, yeah, uh, then it kind of becomes counter. I think they actually uh, sped up the cadence or sped up the music when I became uh, uh, a baby face. Um, but it was still kind of dreary music to come out to as a good guy. So this is all starting to come together, but you've not said yet how you came up with the name Mankind or the idea. It was just having my back against the wall, thinking that Mason was the worst name you I'd You did it in that split second? Uh, well, I did it... I didn't do it at the ta at the table. I'd already thought of the name Mankind. Oh, that's right. Because Man you yeah, had heard it before. Yeah, said it up. just came to me. I did not borrow it from anywhere, uh, not that I know of. Uh, it just was like, you know, you're brainstorming. What could I be? You know, it's got to have an I felt like it had to have an M in it. You know, the man, just Mankind. And it just struck me. That's a great first name. Uh, it's different. You felt like it needed to have an M because of the alliteration. Yeah. But mankind, the mutilator. Yeah. Cause you knew Vince like that. Yeah. You're not going to be Joe, the mutilator. Right. You know, it's going to be, if he had his heart set on Mason, 
it's got to be an option that he would be predisposed to liking. And I thought that was, you know, an M, an M name. Yeah. So uh, eventually you get called into creative services and Debbie Bon, what's her name? That's it. I can't remember her last name. Uh, uh, Bonazino? Yeah, that would be it. There That's the one. Debbie's the one. Oh, should I be saying this? Putting yeah. her in hot water? She is the one who revealed to me the Mason name. Okay. Yes. Um, so what's your actual contractual status when you leave that meeting? At this point, you've returned the contract, maybe set the wrong one accidentally, or does yeah. that happen after the fact? Conrad, I honestly don't know. I think by that point I probably returned it because we were getting down to the nuts and bolts of it. I was just curious if you were maybe just let me just see how this goes before I commit. No, you no. were committed. By yeah, this point. I was committed by that point. I mean, that's part of what I talked to with my wife. I think I was thirty at that point. Yeah, I was thirty years old. Felt like I had another four or five good years left in me. And uh, felt like I needed to know what it was like to be there. Where, where did the have a nice day thing come from? That's from Jim Ross. Uh, we do the first uh, when we're going. He was in the, he was in uh, the pseudo dungeon that had been built. And I was supposed to do a quick. It wasn't one of the sit down ones. It was a, a quick one. And he just came up off the top of his head, you know, say something, have a nice day. And then I ran with that, you know, it became, who knew, you know, 22, that was 22 years later, I'm still saying have a nice day. Your first vignette airs on Superstars on January 6th. Um, when this airs and now it's not in a quote unquote dirt sheet, but the world is watching. Yeah. Does your phone light up with guys in the business? What is this? Um, yeah, because I wouldn't have found out through text messages and there was no, uh, Twitter at that time. There were some people, I, I think Shane may have chimed in that it wasn't a good, uh, <laughs> there were some people predicting that it was going to be the death of that character. You know, gold dust had come in with a bold new vision for his character. Some people thought that was going to be the death of the character. It worked out. And he made it work. You know, he made it work because of his commitment. Well, I mean, listen, if, if The Undertaker had come along with anybody else in any other era, it would not have worked the way it did. Like, right, the yeah, guy makes yeah, it work. Yeah, the guy makes it work. Yeah. So once, the you know, when The Undertaker got behind that, I had a lot of, you know, I got a lot of guys in my in my corner. I've got Undertaker. I've got Bruce. I've got Jim Ross. Cornette. Cornette, yeah. So a lot of people, Vince Russo is a big uh big believer in what i can do we haven't talked about him yet yeah he's starting to uh work his way up the ranks yes in the wwf at the time and he's gone from quote unquote just being a magazine writer to more and more he's becoming involved and creative and being a part of the process because vince wrote out the original promos uh that i largely rejected and rewrote myself for the mankind for the mankind vignettes yeah russo wrote them yeah he wrote the original ones and then I turned it. What in. didn't you like about him? There was some talk at Dar Barney the dinosaur. Uh, I just it, it didn't feel it, didn't, it wasn't as dark as didn't you didn't feel like a good fit. Uh, I wanted something that felt real to me, and that uh, um, Mary Shelley meets Tori Amos. Uh, it would be more haunting. Yeah, it was haunting. Yeah, she's got a voice. I think it'd be described like ethereal. Is that the way you pronounce it? Like otherworldly. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so even people who are not fans of her music, I think, can acknowledge that there's a unique quality and a haunting feel. And uh, I wanted that, and it inspired me. These vignettes, how many of these do you remember recording? Was it one at a time over the series of a weekend, or what was that like? I think we banged out uh, four or five in one day. So it was Kevin Dunn shooting them. He was like, I like it. It's got an eerie feeling. It was good. Uh, you know, I can read people pretty well, even at that age. You know, I'd been around. I, I didn't think they were paying look, lip service to me. I just did, didn't dawn on me. Howard Finkel was another guy who was in my corner. Um, was there did, a producer besides Kevin Dunn? I don't or? remember. I'm sure there was, but Kevin was the main guy. Where did the uh, George the Rat come in? They wanted uh, they wanted uh, that rodent. They thought it'd be creepy, and uh, Corny's wife, you know, had a couple pets uh, that fit the bill. So he brought George in. I'm not crazy about. It. I love chipmunks and squirrels. And, uh, most of the rodent a family. Has a pet is yeah, weird. yeah, yeah. He's got the big tail, but there was that was not going to be an issue, right? It was not uh, for a guy who had. Uh, you know, made his reputation in high school for eating worms. Having a rat climbing over me was not going to be an issue. Talk to me about, you know, the the bowels of the building. And, I mean, that became sort of the home of yeah, mankind. Yeah. Was that always going to be the plan or just evolved into that? Well, I think once they establish him in the dungeon, yes. he's in a dark place. Uh, and so I, I, knew, I would retreat to the boiler room anyway, because this didn't feel like a perfect fit to me. There were times when Cactus Jack could get dark and did get dark, like with the Kane Dewey promo, but this was going to be a guy who like dwelled in darkness in my head, you know? And maybe it sounds a little self-important, but I really felt like, all right, this is not a natural fit. I have to get into this character like a method actor would. No, that's and not arrogant. It is acting. Yeah, yeah, so I was putting that mask on five or six hours before I went out. I was retreating to dark places mentally and physically, and that I would come out like an hour before, maybe maybe more, but it felt like I would come out an hour before. We were usually the semi-main event, so I had a chance to like stretch out and you know do some like calisthenics, so that when I hit the uh, when I hit the ring, I was ready. And there was something I would do with the original series of matches with the undertaker and this is you know we all borrow from people that we ad admired and looked up to and this is something chris candido did with me when i was working for smoky mountain wrestling which is he wouldn't just bail out and slink away he would literally run away mm -hmm. sprinting run away i think i may have accentuated that because when i was running for the hills i had bigger arenas to run in you know, when, when I was working with Chris, it was like Peel's Palace in Erlanger, Kentucky, you know. Yeah. And, and some, so now I've got these 17,000-seat arenas. So when The Undertaker would get the better of me the first time and I took off, I had the Forrest Gump, you know, I had the knees up there, I had the arms running like this, and then I would get to what I thought was a safe spot and I would look around. This is, this is prior to having Paul Bearer. And then we upped that ante when we got to Kuwait and we worked in the National Football State or Soccer Stadium. And now it's like a 117-yard run. Like, I'm going to do it like I'm Ben Johnson. Like, am I safe? Is he only 75 yards, 80 yards away from me? And I like the idea that someone could be scared. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about uh, last week, the difference between Shane McMahon's fearlessness and the courage 
of Mick Foley is that Shane wasn't afraid of things, anything. I was, but I found ways to do them. So I liked the idea of somebody who was terrified by almost everything. Uh, I thought that made him more dangerous, that he was always going to be perpetually worried and scared and then would act in the face of that. And that, uh, uh, you know, creating uh, human suffering did put his mind at ease. Everything with the company at this point feels like the momentum is turning, including in February, Eddie Guerrero wins the WWE title at No Way Out. He beat Brock Lesnar. A lot of people wouldn't have ever predicted that that yeah. was in the cards for him. You had known Eddie for quite a while. Uh, what did you think of that? Oh, oh, Eddie was, you know, he was just so super smooth. I was the, the commissioner when I think the light switched uh, for Eddie as a character. This was going back to 2000, and uh, he wanted to be in the ring when China uh, wrestled for the Intercontinental Championship to make, he wanted me to make it a three-way so yeah. he could look out for her. And he just came alive in that vignette in a way that I'd never seen uh, Eddie Guerrero. Clearly, Eddie had charisma when he was, you know, especially him and Art Barr were a team, you know, but he had gone to being someone who was seen as the consummate professional and technician, but not necessarily a character. And this is just my, and my interpretation is this was the light switching moment. Boom, right there. And that was when the Mamacita stuff started. Yep. And now Eddie's in there just purely to protect China. He was to cover her fallen body, not realizing the referee's counting. But when the referee does, he, he moves those eyes around. And to me, a star is born yes. that day. It's not the great consummate professional that we saw in WCW and everywhere he's gone. He is all of that still, but now he's it's a character. He's a character and it takes off. And, uh, you know, later in time in 2004, I would be so fortunate to go to uh, Afghanistan uh, with WWE for their tribute to the troops. And because I'm F Foley G Guerrero, we end up rooming and we end up talking all night. No sleep at all. And it was one of the great, memorable discussions and one that I was so glad to have had, you know, because we lost Eddie, I guess, about a year after that. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that's happening at WrestleMania, of course, is Chris Benoit has won the Royal Rumble. So now he's got a title shot and he's got it against Hunter. But of course, we know that's not actually what's going to happen. It's going to wind up being a three-way that goes on last. Now, the three-way that I was told could never happen back when I had the chance to do a three-way. I can't wait to bring it up because <laughs> WrestleMania 15 was supposed to be famously Rock, Austin, Foley. Right. But supposedly, as the legend goes, Shawn Michaels felt like, nope, the main event of WrestleMania is mano y mano. It's not three guys. He goes to Vince and gets it changed. Well, fast forward literally five years and now it's Hunter and Benoit, but what do you know? Shawn Michaels makes it yeah, a three-way. Right. And not only, look, Shawn, uh, to me. This is good Shawn now. This is good Shawn. Best wrestler of his generation. Yes. Okay? I'll describe greatest wrestler of his generation, generation I describe as the era of the monthly pay-per-view. There you right? go. Greatest wrestler of that, of our, my generation. Um. But I was working so hard every week to lay down this storyline that was cohesive, made sense, 
And then I believe Sean got into the match by super kicking Benoit and signing the contract instead of him. Done deal. And I was like, I don't think that's legally binding. Like, uh, I don't think that's the way documents go. Uh, but I just thought, that's what my editor at Alfred A. Knopf would say, that's just too convenient. You know, I just, uh, I bothered me, you know, like I said, that's the only match that I'm going to say did not give as much credit for attracting the attention as it deserved, because I just thought what we put into storytelling was better than what they had put into the storytelling. Now, they were the ones who came up big on the grandest stage of them all. And I'm not trying to compare what we did in our match in the ring to what they did because oh, well you had a much better story but to yeah. me the greater issue to me is wait a minute the guy who said it shouldn't be a three-way now makes it a three-way well, that has to bother you a little bit it did did back then maybe uh, the, the way the only thing that bothered me about it was that storytelling device that i thought was too convenient less than yeah i wasn't i i I had always felt like it could be a triple threat, and that was borne out by the success of the triple threats they've had since then, as main events at Mania. Hey guys, Tony Schiavone. Need to call a timeout real quick. Wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling what happened when listeners for a while now about all the cool things happening over on adfreeshows.com. On a new edition of The Insiders, Conrad sits down with former Turner Finance executive Dirty Dick Cheatham, talking about the internal war between WCW and Turner and the Monday Night War with the WWF. And my uh, assistant said, hey, you're not going to believe who's down there. I said, who, who? She says, China's down there. And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, uh, and I went over to her window and looked at hey, the whole, the, all of the eggs is down there. Get the camera! <laughs> so, so we went down there, and of course, they were the actually back what was down there in the fight with security. On a bonus episode of My World, Double J watches back his tag team championship match against FTR and breaks down the hilarious Briscoe farm skit that preceded it. And they say, Can y'all be in the background talking? And the four of us are down there, really, just all four of us. But Lethal and Sanjay, I said, We gotta start being silly. I just started strumming the guitar. And started bouncing that baby, and Sanjay started doing the dose do. I think this is, I don't know, this is the funniest, but I still think it's, it's a, hilarious. It's a complete ad lib, but it played to, you know, the line he said, them clowns, and we're down there dancing. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's just a small taste of what we got waiting for you with four levels to choose from. See for yourself why ad free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com.